The following Dharma talk was given by Jody Hojin Kimmel at the Zen Center of New York City. Hojin Sensei is the abbot of the Zen Center and head priest at Zen Mountain Monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone, especially to those of you here for the first time. Welcome. Dado Roshi's prologue to Advice of the Caterpillar. This was the first Dharma talk I heard at Zen Mountain Monastery when I went in 1990. Advice of the Caterpillar. The very body and mind of all beings is as great and boundless as the universe itself. As for how small it is, it is finer than a single atom. We should understand that holding on and letting go are not another's doing. Rolling up and rolling out are both within one's own power If you want to free what is stuck and loosen what is bound, simply remove all traces of mental activity. At this very moment, if one's vision and hearing are clear and color and sound are purely perceived, tell me which is the right side. This side doesn't reach it. That side doesn't reach it. Neither this nor that misses it. Both this and that are 10,000 miles from the truth. Avoid the slightest trace of right and wrong. Say a word. So, of course, um, this advice of the caterpillar, he asks us the main question of our life, who are you? That's his famous opening line to Alice. Who are any of us? Who am I? I'm not, you are, you are who I am. Every one of you in this room is who I am. That's who I am. Um, 7.9 billion people breathing into expression on this planet. And we are each, each other. But we don't know this. I was reading, um, I've been reading Joanna Macy's book again. I don't know if you know her. World is Lover, World is Self. Just kind of turning to her because of the condition of the planet and things that she said a long time ago and just how to work with despair and, um, um, you know, be present. And she writes, I just want to, just a little bit about from her. She writes, there is a secret one inside us, says Kabir. The planets and all the galaxies pass through his hands like beads. 
and Hildegard of Bingen experienced unity with the divine, she gave it these words. I am the breeze that nurtures all things green. I am the rain coming from the dew that causes the grasses to laugh with the joy of life. And she says, I used to think I ended with my skin, that everything within the skin was me and everything outside the skin was not. But now, she says, I am a system, she's a system theorist, um, have helped me see is a flow-through. And a flow-through of matter, energy, and information, which is transformed and turned by my own experiences and intentions. So this flow-through, that is, it is, um, transformed at the same time by my experiences and intentions. Systems theory seeks to define the principles by which this transformation occurs, but not the stuff itself that flows through, for that, in the last analysis, would be a metaphysical endeavor. She said there are system thinkers that she names the bolding suggest that we can so- simply call it agape, the Greek and early Christian word for love. Yeah. I remember we did book reports years ago at the monastery. We came, Dido came up with this idea. Um, everyone would pick a topic, and to get the song involved, you would pick a topic. And I remember passing Dido in the... Uh, he was going to the to the bathroom. We passed in the hallway. And he says, Hoj, what's your book report on? And I said, Mutual Causality in Buddhism. <laughs> and this is like my first year of residency. But I was really struck with this thing the Buddha said, with this being, that becomes. That being, this becomes. Patika sammupado, how we are this diamond net, right, that everything affects one another and um, this Huayen philosophy. Um, anyway, I, when I went to give my book report, there was a blackout. <laughs> so I had to do it by flashlight. And Dido went home. I was so happy. <laughs> I did it. I was like, oh, God, he doesn't have to hear this. But I, later I thought, years later, like 20 years later, I thought, wow. Why did I, like, I picked like something that's so difficult to teach. <laughs> I was so bold. I'm doing patika samupada. <laughs> yeah. And so um, Joanna also speaks about um, what is destroying our world is this persistent notion that we are independent of it, aloof from other species and immune to what we do to them. This is not new news that I'm saying. But she speaks of these three movements. She said, the larger selfness we discover today is not an undifferentiated unity. Not that we don't see differences. And, you know, that's the beauty, that we're not all the same. Our recognition of this may be the third part of an enfoldment of consciousness that began a long time ago, like the third movement of a symphony. 
Hang in there. She says, the first movement, our infancy as a species, we felt no separation from the natural world around us. Trees, rocks, and plants surrounded us with a living presence as intimate and pulsing as our own bodies. And they, that was called participation mystique. And then she says, then self-consciousness arose and gave us distance on our world. And she said, we needed that distance in order to make decisions and strategies, in order to measure, judge, and monitor our judgments. Nowadays, yearning to reclaim a sense of wholeness, some of us tend to disparage that movement of separation from nature. But it brought great gains for us, which we can be grateful. The distanced and observing eye brought us tools of science, a priceless view of the vast, orderly intricacy of our world. The recognition of our individuality brought us trial by jury and the Bill of Rights. Now harvesting these gains, she says, we're ready to return to the where the third movement begins, which is... Um, who we have been all along. Now it can dawn on us, it has to, that we are our world knowing itself. We can relinquish our separateness. We can come home again and participate in a world in a richer and more responsible and poignantly beautiful way than before in our infancy. You can look at more of the, and there's a poem I might share from Thich Nhat Hanh at the end, we'll see. But I'd like to cite this case. Listen. Chapter 5 of Alice in Wonderland, Advice from the Caterpillar. The caterpillar and Alice looked at each other for some time in silence. At last, the caterpillar took its hookah out of its mouth and addressed her in a languid, sleepy voice. Who are you? said the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging opening for a conversation. Alice replied rather shyly, I I, I hardly know, sir, just at the present. At least I knew who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. What do you mean by that? The caterpillar said sternly. Explain yourself. I I can't explain myself. I'm afraid, sir, said Alice, because I'm not myself, you see. I don't see, said the caterpillar. I'm afraid I can't put it more clearly, Alice replied very politely, for I can't understand it myself to begin with. And being so many different sizes in a day is very confusing. It isn't, said the caterpillar. Well, perhaps you haven't found it it so yet, said Alice, but when you have a turn to turn into a chrysalis, you will someday, you know, and then after that into a butterfly, I think you'll feel a little queer, won't you? Not a bit 
said the caterpillar. (laughs) Well, perhaps your feelings may be different, said Alice. All I know is I would feel very, it would feel very queer to me. You, said the caterpillar. Who are you? Which brought them back to the very beginning of the conversation again. Alice felt a little irritated at the caterpillars making very short remarks. And she drew herself up and said very gravely, I think you ought to tell me who you are first. Why, said the caterpillar. Here was another puzzling question, and Alice could not think of a good reason. And as the caterpillar seemed to be in a very unpleasant state of mind, she turned away. Come back, the caterpillar called after her. I've got something important to say. Hasn't that happened to us? We turn around, somebody says, wait, I have something important. (laughs) Do we turn back? She turns back. There's koans on that. Teacher says, just a minute. Got the student back again. This sounded promising. Certainly. Alice turned and came back. Keep your temper, said the caterpillar. Keep your temper. Is that all? said Alice, swallowing down her anger as well as she could. No, said the caterpillar. Alice thought she might as well wait, as she had nothing else to do, and perhaps, after all, he might tell her something worth hearing. For some minutes, it puffed away without speaking. But at last, it unfolded its arms, took the hookah out of its mouth again, and said, So, you think you've changed? Do you? I'm afraid I am, sir, said Alice. I can't remember things as I used to, and I don't keep the same size for ten minutes together. What size do you want to be? He asked. Oh, I'm not particular to size, Alice hastily replied. Only one doesn't like changing so often. You know. I don't know, said the caterpillar. (laughs) Sounds like our Zen teacher, right? (laughs) Everywhere you go. Oh, I'm not. Are you content now? I don't know, said the caterpillar. Alice said nothing. She had never been so much contradicted in her life before, and she felt that she was losing her temper. Are you content now, said the caterpillar? Well, I should like to be a little larger, sir. If you wouldn't mind, said Alice, three inches is such a wretched height to be. It was a very... It's a very good height indeed, said the caterpillar angrily, rearing up itself upright, being exactly three inches tall. (laughs) But I'm not used to it, pleaded poor Alice in a piteous tone as she thought of herself. Irish creatures wouldn't be so easily offended. You'll get used to it in time, said the caterpillar, and put the hookah back in its mouth and began smoking again. (laughs) 
This time Alice waited patiently until it chose to speak again. In a minute or two, the caterpillar took the hookah out of its mouth and yawned once or twice and shook itself. Then it got down off the mushroom, crawled away in the grass, merely remarking as it went, one side will make you grow taller and the other side will make you grow shorter. One side of what? The other side of what? thought Alice to herself. Of the mushroom, said the caterpillar, just as if she had asked it aloud, and in another moment they were out of sight. Alice remained looking thoughtfully at the mushroom for a minute, trying to make out which were the two sides of it. And it was perfectly round. She found this a very difficult question. However, at last she stretched her arms as far as they would go and broke off a bit of the edge. So that's the case. Who are you? So you think you've changed, which is which. All good entry points from Pillar Roshi. Um, Alice was a bit of a heroine in my life. Um, I collected Alice in Wonderland books. It was the only book I had um, a collection of. Different sizes, too. There was one this big in Cracker Jacks, if you remember Cracker Jacks. <laughs> and then there's big ones, really big ones. And um, I remember um, her falling down in that scene uh, down the rabbit hole and just looking around at things and not grabbing on to anything. And I thought, I want to be like that. <laughs> I grab on to everything down on the way. One, one time I was at a flea market. This was um, when I was just started coming to the monastery and I would drive up three hours from Philadelphia for the Sunday program. So those of you that are just a little ways, <laughs> every, every Sunday I tried to drive up, but it was in competition with the flea market that was on Sundays too. And I liked to go because in, I was making things, I was in the arts, and I always liked to go to try and get something for the arts. And this one time I decided, monastery, flea market, monastery, flea market, flea market. <laughs> I'm going to the flea market. And I found Alice in Wonderland. And it was the year I was born. And when I opened it, it was very crunchy and, and the pages were very flaky, but out slid the page with the caterpillar in cartoon and the caption read, who are you? And I thought, oh, I should have gone to the monastery. <laughs> there is my like message from the universe. So I went eventually, and the first talk I heard was Dido give this advice to the caterpillar. And I was just like, oh my God, he's doing my koan. I read a while back, I read a book, maybe you've read it, by Punlop Rinpoche called Rebel Buddha. Anybody read that? Rebel Buddha. 
And in a, um, Rinpoche um, speaks about, um, he asks, what, what is a rebel Buddha like? He says, it is the renegade that gets you to switch your allegiance from asleep to awakened state. The mission is to instigate a revolution of mind. Rebel is one who questions, resists, refuses to obey, or rises against the unjust or unreasonable control of an authority or tradition. So I think we all have this little rebel Buddha in us. Um, Is there a rebellious streak in you? Do you have a... (laughs) Everyone's looking away. Somebody else. (laughs) Sometimes we feel it, and it's a very positive force fueled with our goodness, our wisdom, that can cut and free us from fear and from ignorance. We need it. We need to have that questioning full of anger and resentment. We can see it and turn it into a force um, that's destructive, or we can turn it into something helpful. Alice always had a curious nature, courageous, full of wonder, was able to embrace uncertainty. I spoke about that last week. And she was a regular person who dares to change the rules. I think with her friends, she was considered a little odd, like many of us that practice. And she goes underground, of course, this adventure, falling down this rabbit hole. And how many people do we know like this, these unsung heroes or some that are sung, historical, social, artistic, poetic, ancestral rebels? How many stand out in your mind, people with magnanimous, noble courage and compassion and what they did for the cause of liberty and justice, for the benefit of all beings? And there is many who they challenge, Rebels challenge people. They're called the troublemakers, right? The troublemakers. Their company is not always so welcome, even may cost them their lives. And they're a mixed blessing. They make people nervous because they're hard to push aside. And they keep coming back with questions that no one will ask. So we need a bit of this today in us. It's easier, easier to judge the mind of a person by their questions rather than their answers. It was a quote I found by Pierre-Marc Gaston de Levis, a French writer. Do you know him? I didn't. <laughs> but I thought that was interesting. It's easier to judge the mind of a person by their questions rather than their answers. Answers are not as important as the questions. And discovering the conditioning around the answers for a practitioner. So what's the question? And then what is the answer? And 
What is the conditioning around that answer? To explore that is very fruitful. I love this way of thinking because it turns things upside down for us sometimes. Where our ego can want things, us to turn out on top of things, but that we can do this inquiry to what, what's, I mean, everything's conditioned in a sense, but just to see what we are believing and what's true for us. Because we're kind of used to a consensus reality what most of us agree upon. Today, Alice would be 153 years old. So what is the most important thing for you right now? What's the most important thing in your life? And sometimes if we don't make contact with the most important thing, that question, what is the most important thing, it can get lost. It can get lost. Forgotten. Or we have enough comfort to have amnesia. But they don't go away. They'll catch us. We can sometimes smell it. We can smell it. Like we have this, something's important and we can, we can smell it. We can taste it, touch it. Those questions are us. Those important questions are us. And zazen is a way of being to meet that living question that's most important in a nonverbal way that we sit into being the question itself. And that's what's alive. It's the most important thing. We may not have a sentence about it, but we we feel it. We know it. And that's what we sit into. That question is who we are. That's alive. that they're always living in us as something not ever known. And culture works by a lot of knowns, right? Be sure. Who says, I don't know at a job interview? I don't know. No, we want someone who knows. So this question, who are you? Is fundamental. Would it, how, and that's not how we may ask it, but it's there. We want to know. We want to know. Alice replied, I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least I know who I was when I got this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. Did you ever wake up and enter the day and Notice all these changes in us. One moment we wake up, it's, it's a brilliant morning. Five minutes later, we're dull and we're cranky. 
Sometimes we're calm and open-hearted. Very quickly, we're tight as a fist. Sensitive, scared, maybe scared, hurried, refusing, joyful, loving, enjoying everything and everyone. What were we thinking not to love? And then, gone. This is the best practice. I'm never coming back here again. (laughs) Within a span of 10 minutes. Or someone looked at us wrong during Kinhin and changed our life. (laughs) It's that fast, right? And these are just suchness moments. Happy, sad, joyous, cloud, rain. Just moments of suchness. But we, we turn into concrete turn into cement. And that's where that question needs to come back to keep us fluid. So we're either fluid or we're a bit stuck, right? So all we have to do is bring back that most important thing. And maybe that will bring us back to that belonging to our nature, our true nature. So in all of that, which is the real you? The cranky one? The joyful one? The sensitive one? The one tight as a fist? Which one actually describes us? So we just notice. That's all we can do. This thing's flowing on. (laughs) And we have this that movement where we see things, we notice things, we're self-conscious, we're seeing. That's the practice. And we can just be aware. Awareness can just be aware of itself. Awareness can just be aware. It's aware. That's what awakens. This is what we can do. That's why Dogen, his master Dogen, this was a Zen master, his question was, you know, everyone said, you're all right. Buddha said, you're enlightened right from the beginning. And he was like, okay, if we are, then why do we have to do all this stuff? Why do we have to sit here for hours, perfectly still, do this practice? If we're already enlightened, why? And that was his quest. That was his question. That was his most important question. And what did he offer us? Think non-thinking. What? Like, Stop the mental formation, like think, be aware, but think non-thinking. There is no thinker thinking it. Don't get so into this thinker as a thing. Think non-thinking. So Zazen is the heart of Zen, a, a place of silent spaciousness to investigate and see how the mind constructs I, me, mine out of the very simple experiences of seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching. It constructs an identity. Mind states that create stress attached to the free fall, freeze it all up, and see how it then becomes the foundation of our, for views, concepts, and opinions, right? 
to protect what? Our turf, our separate turf. So Dogen said what he realized too is practice is enlightenment. Practice is enlightenment. So those of you for your first time today, just because you came and you sat down, that is an expression. That is an enlightened expression. You're expressing what Buddha said, that you're already enlightened from the beginning. You just showed it. Now what we what happens is we see there's a lot in the way of that. It's pretty cloudy. We don't see that exactly. There's a lot of confusion. There's it's like there's a bright sky, but it's clouded over. And so we keep seeing through those clouds, right? And the moment we get a little, the light comes, but the, it's already present. It's never been anywhere. It just gets unclouded. So we make that space so we can look and see all the... One person, yada, yada, yada. I always love that. Yada, 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 yada. <laughs> yeah. Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree. Mara. Mara is that aspect of us that gets narrow, necessary, um, not expansive. Mara mind, when we get very tight. Buddha mind is our expansive, fertile, um, vast mind. By whose authority do you take this seat? Mara asked Buddha. And Buddha touched the earth. He sat down in his aloneness, not trying to be like someone or something else or try to control or manage his life. He just sat down, being true to his own question, his own yearning, his own search. And as we know, it took him a long time, a lot of spiritual practice to purge hundreds of generations of conditioning out of his system so he could finally sit under that tree. How much did we purge to show up today for lifetimes that you turned this morning to come to a temple? Lots, lots to take your seat. You, know, you may not even, generations of stuff that you arrived here today he could finally embody his aloneness. Can you imagine what it would be like to relieve ourselves of this immensity of human conditioning? That's what he did. And we're, we're, we're at it. We're at it. And we have useful conditioning. If it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be here. Hearts beat. Blood flows, breath moves in and out, eyes blink, all without our management. It all goes conditioned to do this in our biology, evolving over millions of years. So mostly it's on automatic. But what we're dealing with now is more of a psychological conditioning. And once it gets in our system, we become afraid of our aloneness because it's 
so unimaginably unknown. And we didn't learn that that's okay. We didn't learn that that's okay. Our ancestors show us the possibility that we're capable to a large degree to see through all our identifications, grasping to form, memory. We can, we can release that to whatever degrees we can. Little by little, we practice. This can only result in serving humanity and each other because we see for ourselves that's inseparable. So whatever you do, I do. That there's no out there. It seems unimaginable until it happens. And maybe this was your first time sitting down and it already has happened to some degree. There's something you saw. Something you saw. Maybe just the yada, 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 yada. Just saw that. That's big. I remember the first time I sat down formally in Zazen. I had in, in nature, but when I was really like, suddenly it became a thing with a sangha. And I was like, it was like a pinball machine. It was just going back and forth all around. But I saw it. And I practiced it. I was like, oh, they said, see that, acknowledge it, and just go to your breath. Like, go back to your breath. Like, this is now. This breath is now. Not, not all that stuff. Now. This breath. And it just went right back. And then it would get pulled again. And then I'd go, okay, this is what I'm trying to learn. Pull it, put it back. It doesn't stop that. That doesn't, if you ever think you're going to sit here to stop thinking, <coughs> so it just gets quieter and stiller for sure. There's moments. But ask anybody that's been here for 20 some years sitting here if they don't have a period where it's just stirred up. And they practice, and they see it. What is it? Who am I? Am I that? Here comes my sister. Is she in my head? Alice said, one doesn't like changing so often, you know. Indeed. It hasn't changed. The imperative and practice to purge hundreds of years hundreds of generations of conditioning out of our system. Some will, some will not. In ourselves, we can see how this plays out and do our very best. Do our very best. That's all. I spoke of um, some teachers I have in different realms, and one is um, Sonia Renee Taylor, um, she's a black author and activist. Um, you can look her up. She's incredibly wise. And she has a, a, um, a, a talk she gives called This Body is Not an Apology. And she writes, We will not go back to normal. This was kind of right after COVID. Normal never was. Our pre-corona 
existence was not normal other than we normalized greed, inequity, exhaustion, depletion, extraction, disconnection, confusion, rage, hoarding, hate, and lack. We should not long to return. My friends, we are being given the opportunity to sew a new garment, one that fits humanity and nature. As the Buddha said, the world, or we can say us, whose very nature is to change, is constantly determined to become something else. If we at the mercy of, are at the mercy of change, only happy when caught up in the process of change, oh, it, we, is at the mercy of change, only happy when caught up in the process of change. But this love of change contains a great measure of fear, and this fear itself is called dukkha, suffering. I wish creatures wouldn't be so easily offended. (laughs) You'll get used to it in time, said the caterpillar. Will we? Will we get used to it? being so easily offended. Although all dualities come from the one, this is from the Faith Mind poem. This is a, a poem on dualities. All, although all dualities come from the one, do not be attached even to this one. When the mind exists undisturbed in the way, nothing in the world can offend. When, and when a thing can no longer offend, it ex- ceases to exist in the old way. What is a thing? When a thing can no longer offend. Subject and object, object, subject. When a thing is no, can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. So I'm sure each one of us here has had a glimpse of the experience of not being separate, not two. It doesn't mean, since we've had that experience, that at any moment we're not going to experience division again in some way, because we know there's a lot in storage. So sometimes people get attached to that <laughs> experience when, or it's brought on in other ways where we experience that unity, that, that, that connection, and we try and hold it, and then we're miserable because we can't get it back. But any state of mind that we've gone to is in us. In any way that we've gotten there, we can get to it. It is us. So Daido Roshi's capping verse. Oh, sorry, Thich Nhat Hanh's poem. Being rock, being gas, being mist, being mind, 
being the messens, traveling among galaxies with the speed of light. You have come here, my beloved one. You have manifested yourself as trees, as grass, as butterflies, as single-celled beings, and as chrysanthemums. But the eyes with which you look at me this morning tell me you have never died. You have never died. Rather than free the body, free the mind. When the mind is at peace, the body is at peace. When the body and mind are both set free, the way is clear and undisguised. One side will make you grow larger. One side will make you grow shorter. One side of what? The other side of what? Of the mushroom. Alice remained looking thoughtfully at the mushroom for a minute, trying to make out which were the two sides of it, as it was perfectly round. Perfectly round. So if we can stretch our arms around any single thing, as far as it will go, break off a bit of peace into the edge with each hand. Now, which is which? Say a word. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.